iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Right, so it's Fee here with you. We're just, uh, Eve and I have decided we're just going to AI Jane into the podcast because she's quite late arriving. And she had to go for a whittle during the news bulletin at half past as well. I do hope she's okay. Now, today on the podcast, uh, we are going to announce book three in our book club choices. And thank you to everybody uh, who has sent in all of their suggestions. Uh, So we were inundated with suggestions. uh, And if we can be really fair and honest and open about it, uh, the book that got the most suggestions was Claire Keegan's latest uh, novella. But we decided not to go for that because it is just really in the kind of currency of discussions about books at the moment. And what we are trying to do with the book club is just to recommend things that we wouldn't ordinarily have come across. So uh, bear with me because I'm going to look up the exact name of the book that we've chosen. But it is by Anne. Have you got a drum roll, Eve? Right. (laughs) Okay. So it's by Trent Dalton, who is an Australian journalist and writer. And the book that we have chosen... Hello. Hello. I'm just doing the podcast on my own. The book that we've chosen is Boy Swallows Universe, uh, which was recommended by quite a few of our Australian correspondents. So if you'd like to join us in reading Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton, we have made sure that it's available uh, on in paperback and on audio as well. Yeah. However you like to download it, listen to it, read it or whatever. Uh, we will give you about five weeks to read it and we will reconvene and discuss Trent Dalton's Boy Swallows Universe. And from what you were saying earlier, some people absolutely love this book. But not everybody who read it did. No, so it's got quite a few five-star reviews yeah. on a well-known reviewing platform mm. and then it's got some excoriating one-star okay. ones. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that'll be interesting then. Yes, it will be. Yeah. Uh, and I know nothing about Trent Dalton apart, apart from the fact that he's a man, isn't he? So this will be our first book. I've never book. read a book by a man. Have Ever. you never, Jane? Imagine <laughs> not sullied your mind. Uh, of, key, of course, um, my dad actually, uh, for many years, claimed never to have read a book by a woman. Oh, God. Okay. But, but in latter life, later life, latter life, later life, he's very much become a fan of Val McDermott. Okay, well, so, I mean, that's, that's... He said to me on Saturday, oh, she's a cracking writer, that Val McDermott. I said, right, she, uh, if this message reaches her dad, I'm sure the view of a 90-year-old scouser will absolutely shake her world. But, yeah, you've done well there, Val, to impress my dad. Do you, not think, easy. do you think that, that that will then allow him to move into more female literature? Well, I think it's only a matter of time before Simone de Beauvoir enters his life. How do you think it's affected him, in all seriousness, the fact that he's never read a book from a female perspective, Jane, with two daughters no, and a wife? I know, genuinely. I do, but I don't think it's unusual. No, I don't, I don't think it's I, unusual Somebody of his, his vintage, I don't think it's at all unusual, I'm afraid. And I, I think... You know, just as we have been um, all our lives um, listening to men on the radio, seeing men on the telly, reading books by men. And I like, you know, as you know, I love loads of books by men I like. Um, but it was perfectly possible to be thought of as a well-rounded male individual, um, even if you've never, ever picked up a book mm. by a woman. And it's still a huge problem in yeah, publishing problem. that men don't read books by women, but women read books yeah. by women and men. And it and stretches into the podcast world as well, doesn't it? It's, it do- oh, I think it stretches into everything, Jane. Uh, so you've got to make a concerted effort, I think, uh, as a man to actually break through those algorithms now, because as we all know, we are being siloed by technology in terms of our taste, which is why it would be so cracking to read a book by a young Australian man, yeah. well, younger than us he's not young young he's in his 40s uh and you know we'll have a nice discussion about that but you know what when I was growing up Jane it just didn't even enter my head to make a choice about what I read based on who the author was I mean just irrespective of gender country 
sexuality, it just really, it just wasn't on my kind of radar. And that's a sad thing, actually, because I think the older I've got, the more I have thought, who's the author? What do I know about them? Before I've delved into the book, I'm not sure that that's a good thing, actually. Um, It probably isn't. But, I mean, you know, we said it a million times. Reading should be pleasurable. I don't think it matters what you're reading as long as you're reading. Yeah. Can I just do one recommendation, actually? Uh, Danny Finkelstein's book, uh, which has been out for a couple of months, uh, which is his memoir, basically, about his mum, his dad, Hitler and Stalin, uh, which I was going to read because I was interviewing him and I'll just be really, really honest. Uh, I got hold of a copy of the book and it's quite a meaty tome and I thought well I'll read enough of this to be able to do the interview coherently and I started reading it I could not put it down it is the most brilliantly written book about a story that you think you know you think you might know about a survivor so he had family in Russia and Germany he certainly did we had you know he had family in yes in Germany who then moved to Amsterdam uh, uh, trying to find a place of safety Uh, and then on to America on one side of his family, and then the other side of his family uh, under Stalin uh, were sent to Kazakhstan, often referred to at the time as Siberia as well. Uh, So it's an extraordinary story, but it's so well written with these really lovely little details. So (laughs) Justin Bieber pops up, Ronald Reagan pops up, strawberries pop up. It's just a really, uh, really easy to read book. Uh, that tells you so much stuff along the way. So I'd just like to chuck that in as a really serious uh, recommendation. It would be my non-fiction book of the year. Um, what's it called again? It's called Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad by Daniel Funkelstein. Right. Uh, I know you've you've definitely raved about it, so I will make sure that I seek it out. Um, you also spend a little bit of time in the showbiz company of Miriam Margulies across the weekend. It's just worth mentioning because Miriam doesn't get a lot of attention or coverage. <laughs> she's a shy, retiring <laughs> young woman. She's a reticent lady. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, you know, we were talking briefly on the on the Times Radio program about her ability, and I think it is an ability to eat onions as I would eat an apple. And uh, is there any evidence to? Su- there's no evidence to suggest this is bad for you. Is God, there, I mean, on the contrary, it can't be. It no. can't because otherwise she wouldn't be as hale and hearty as she evidently is. So I think raw onions do wonderful things in terms of blood cleansing, don't they? Okay, and uh, it's a white onion or a red onion. Uh, I think it's a. Well, I've only ever seen. I've only ever met the woman twice. Yeah. So I've only ever seen her with a red onion. You see, I saw her eat a white onion. Well, so that's there you confusing, go. Isn't it? There you go. She's mm. not a discriminatory person at no. all. And how big were her radishes when you saw her? I don't think she had any radishes when I saw her. Okay. This is her backstage rider when she does a theatrical uh, appearance. She has, um, you know, in, oh, in her dressing room. In her dressing room. Fee experienced it on Saturday night. Was it Saturday night? Friday night. Friday night. Uh, she has big bowl of onions and some big radishes. And radishes can be extremely small. I was once at a... Uh, it hasn't. It was a very long and boring evening at a flat in Zagreb many, many years ago. <laughs> oh, I love a story that starts yeah. with a flat in well, Zagreb many couple, years ago. A couple of extremely hospitable uh, Croatian academics, um, and they served radishes as a kind of, as a sort of um, a mousse bouche. And I, I was, I was. I must admit, I was a trifle baffled. I don't think I'd come across the radish in civilian life in the UK. <laughs> so um, that's. I always think back to that night fondly. <laughs> very very hospitable people the crowds but you, you would occasionally get a, some slight they were they were fond of, sort of proffering vats of yogurt at about sort of 10 30 in the morning and, and a, i like my breakfast i like my lunch i don't like meals to mongle i don't like a mid-morning snack i don't really eat that much between meals I tell you what so far i'm here they you're just telling us that they've got excellent gut bacteria Fresh yeah. yogurt being shoved at you, occasional yeah. raw radish. Yeah, as you know, I mean, since my, I'm now post kefir, and I've just never been in better form. Well, darling, was there anything to dip the radish into, or it was just a radish? Yeah, salt, a little salt. bit of salt. Yeah, oh. and something else that happened across the weekend uh, yes. is that my pepper grinder has stopped working, <laughs> and I did feel honestly it was a real low point, even in my very dull middle age, when I had to Google, my pepper grinder is not working. <laughs> Okay. So the thing that amazed me, dear listener, was that in this anecdote retold in the office today, everyone was standing still waiting for the denouement. You did say uh, that your pepper grinder was 
Peugeot. It is a Peugeot. And then and our producer, Rosie, said, oh, yeah, I've got a Peugeot pepper grinder. And like, this was the most normal thing Entirely normal. in the world. Have you got a Citroen salt shaker? Yeah, well, What's you, going on? You were extremely unsympathetic and suggested that I visit a Peugeot garage. Yes. <laughs> you should if it's well, broken. Well, uh, it is broken, but I think they laugh at me. Anyway, if anybody out there in podcast land knows what you do, and I've, I've, I have to say, I have Googled it, and it, various suggestions, it could be that the milling mechanism is past its peak. But this is so. Is it diesel or EV? No, oh, be <laughs> I had no idea that Peugeot made pepper grinders. Is this common knowledge? Yes, it is in West London. Oh. I don't know what goes on in East London. I really don't. But well, they're supposed to be. My children bought me these things. They're supposed to last forever. They're like a heritage salt and pepper collection. Well, well, well. I was going to leave them to my grandchildren, and now I can't. The plot thickens. So, sorry, and this is the last question about your pepper grinder. <laughs> so you just press it, and it kind of, it's got a little engine in it. What What is the mechanism that no, needs it, it to have been built by I, a car manufacturer? Look, I don't know whether why it's... Why don't you an, just have one that, where you screw it? That's exactly what you do do with it, and I don't know why it's called a Peugeot one, and I don't know whether it's in any way connected to the cars. I've no idea. Right. It might be that Peugeot has... an absolutely shocking lack of detail. ...has there, a household appliance division, of which I know nothing. Perhaps you can drive down the road at high speed in a Peugeot washing machine. I don't know. I really don't know. OK. Well, the good news is that somebody out there will know exactly what you're talking about and will probably get in touch. Angela says, Gosh, Rose Tremaine talking about the 60s and her parents was so telling... I was pushed to a secretarial course and waited till my 40s before getting A-levels, going to university and completing a master's. I'd never thought that maybe my parents were jealous, which was Rose Tremaine's take on her own upbringing. Mm. Also, it was a determination of one of my brothers and I never to be like my parents were towards our children, and I hope we succeeded. I could really feel what Rose went through. Uh, she was a cracking guest, actually, wasn't she? Yeah, Rose she's, Tremaine. she's a really, she's really interesting good. person. Yeah, really yeah. interesting. Um, can we talk about indoor and outdoor clothes? Very much so. Danny says, I heard you talking about getting changed into more comfortable clothes after work and I had to email in. I'm a supposedly, supposedly fully grown 28-year-old adult. When I get home from work in the winter, I get changed into a bright pink flamingo onesie with a flamingo beak protruding from the hood. It's just comforting and makes me feel more relaxed. Well, I've got to say, if I knocked on that lady's door... And at sort of late in the evening, I don't know, late by my standards, quarter past seven, let's go for that. And somebody with a flamingo onesie and a beak protruding from the hood answered the door. What would I think? I would think I was interrupting something. Yes, I think <laughs> I would I as well. leave quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was on um, Lime Street Station a couple of weeks ago in Liverpool and um, I saw a couple of people wearing what I thought was a costume, but my kids told me they were furries. What? Yes. People who just wear a sort of um, furry outfit, a kind of animal-like outfit. Like a onesie. Like a onesie, but they go about their daily business. They are, they're furries. Are they fursexual? Um, I don't know whether there's any, any sexual element to it at all, but they just dress as, um, dress as fur furries. I think it's entirely harmless and, listen, it's a free country. Do what you like. Uh, Craig says, giraffe onesie, flatmate had a zebra onesie, happy times. We're missing out on something here, aren't we? <laughs> I think we are. Uh, Elizabeth lives in Switzerland. It's almost a national law that you take your shoes off inside homes. I'm not sure if it's out of respect to the floors or the downstairs neighbours or possibly both. I'm fully behind the shoes off rule, it feels polite, but some people have a large collection of guest slippers at their door. Now, I'm not sure if this is a thoughtful gesture to save guests from cold feet or if it's to stop smelly, uncovered feet from touching your floor. Either way, I find the gift of wearing communal slippers a bit gross. Very I gross. Agree. I absolutely agree. Y yes, I couldn't. I'm afraid I couldn't do that. No, no, I really couldn't. Um, thank you for your podcast. You you pick me up and give me an energy boost as I transition from work mode to evening entertainment and bedtime routine with my one year old. Yes, it can be a little tricky getting the toddling population to go to bed, can't it? So it, it, it can seem like a full shift. Yeah, that's that is quite a shift. So good luck with that, Elizabeth, and I'm I'm glad we're able to keep your company. Now, Jane is a, a very little known part of the world called Stockport. 
Uh, I can hardly believe my first email to you is prompted by your interview with Ken Follett, not an author I follow at all, two exclamation marks. Although I've never read one of his novels, he does have a very fond place in my heart. When I was backpacking around Venezuela with my then boyfriend and a couple of friends in 1996, one of us found Ken's book, Lie Down with Lions, on one of those hostel bookshelves where people leave novels they've read for others. My friend was obsessed by the book and would read us passages. For some reason, we found it hilarious and it became a running joke during our travels. I can't for the life of me think what was funny about it, but your interview stirred up all of those happy memories and also made me wistful for my youth. Perhaps I'll get round to reading the book. Please could Jane confirm whether it's one of his good ones? Uh, you know, I was I read that email. Thank you for it. Um, I don't know about that one. Is it a war, one of his wartime well, I don't know. No, I mean, you're okay. the Ken Follett girl guide. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I would, I, I've, the books I've read of his, they are, I haven't read all of his. I, I read a book called Whiteout, which was about um, something escaping from a lab. That's very good. It's set around Christmas and a slightly dysfunctional family. Um, so um, I would go for that one, actually. Okay. Yeah. I don't think Jane's looking for another one to read. Isn't she? <laughs> no, I don't she think is. is. I think a reading between the lines, I think she is. Uh, she goes on to say, Bloomin' Nora, that fellow can talk. Loved the interview, but nine minutes into an answer to one of your probing questions, I'd entirely forgotten what he was discussing. I'm astonished his books only run to 750-odd <laughs> pages, his editor. Must be busy. Uh, can I also just ask whether you had any uncomfortable feelings about having Geoffrey Archer on your show? He did go to prison. Yeah. <laughs> I could possibly see why you might give him airtime if he had anything useful to say about prison reform or politics, but he declined to be drawn on either and spent his time patronising you and plugging his books. I'll definitely not be reading any Geoffrey Archer. Well, I was away that day. Yes. Yeah. Um, listen, Geoffrey Archer can patronise me. Patronise me any time he likes. I think that was an interview where you could enjoy it because you could read between the lines. That's all I'll say about that. Okay. He's right. a very successful author and, as we can safely say about Geoffrey Archer, a great storyteller. Okay. I mean, a really good one. Uh, I might get hold of a copy of Lie Down with Lions, Jane, and okay. uh, and just see if it is... No, no the other Jane, but you can answer oh, to okay. that too. Yes. Uh, and I've got a feeling, actually, why don't we do a little experiment? I might just bring in, I don't know, a... Joanna Trollope or something in mm -hmm. from home and just see if just reading out tiny passages apropos of nothing is funny because I think it is actually... Why do we play Trollope or Follett? Good idea. Come on! <laughs> Christmas has come early. Okay. But it just is funny sometimes, you know, when you take something completely we could have out a lot of context. We could, we've now invented a quiz which will make us millions. Millions and squillions. Absolutely millions, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, Helen says, I hope you don't mind me coming straight to the point. No. Uh, but since no one else has asked yet, is Michael Ball going to be coming on the podcast? He has quite a book to promote, as I'm sure you already know, and I think now must be as good a time as any. OK, um, I'm here to tell you that he is coming on, isn't he? He is, I think, in a couple of weeks' time. It's the week next after next. Thursday. Next Thursday. No. Thursday yes, after. Yes, yeah, Thursday. Is that yeah. the 12th of October? That's after we come back from Cheltenham. Oh, what a, what a week we've got next week. Well, we have, because we've got Shirley Ballas mm. on Monday from Cheltenham. Mm. Do we know who, who Tuesday's Cheltenham guest is, Eve? It's not 100%. Not 100% confirmed. So if you hear a guest on Tuesday when we're in Cheltenham, you'll know they were a tiny bit of a last-minute booking, but we'll certainly sound enthusiastic about chatting to them, I can assure you. Um, OK, so rest assured, Helen, uh, Michael Ball is heading your way. Excellent. And I'm very excited about that. Now, Lucian sent a very nice uh, email, and thank you for picking up on this, Lucian, because I felt that it rather sank without trace. Uh, hello, Fee. I was listening to your podcast and heard that you were on a quest to source some bounty candy for Jane. I thought that was so nice of you to do that. Pause. Very nice. Thank you. So I'm writing to let you know that you can find some American candy in London that's very similar to Bounty. And here we go, Jane. Do you like the sound of this? Almond Joy, which is made of milk chocolate and coconut, just like a Bounty, but it also contains nuts. It's not going to work because it's milk chocolate. Oh. The point is you like a dark chocolate. That's I, what I was I, trying to find for no, you. No, I, I like dark chocolate Bounties, but I really prefer... Can I just be really pedantic here? I like a dark milk a dark milk? Yeah. A dark milk chocolate? I do, yeah. Just Tony Chocoloni does. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to buy you the Bounty Dark. I'm not, I'm not funding your Can't chocolate you buy habit. buy me Tony Chocoloni. <laughs> but here's the other suggestion from, from Lucian. Mounds. 
Oh, I don't think I like, don't like the sound of those, I'm afraid. Which is made of dark chocolate and coconut without nuts. Now, I'm sorry, Lucy, but when I read that, I just, I had the same reaction as Jane. I am never, ever going to be able to part my good money, hard-earned wages, for a chocolate bar called Mounds. No, I don't, I don't want a mound. Because that just sounds like, it, it may as well be called high in calories which is a bar nobody would buy just the word mound yeah, no, it's wrong it's wrong no, yeah. I'm, I'm but try- Lucy, thank you thank you for noticing i'm mm. trying to have a moderately healthy week this week um did you have any of the brownies no and you brought in these lovely brownies and i know they're really lovely because they're from a, the gower aren't yeah, they yeah and you yeah. managed to stand have, off from I have them not had one wow i know are you pregnant <laughs> Why would that stop me eating? I'm feeling a little sick. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that'd be it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention, oh, first of all, Lisa, who remembers our guest, and our guest, she was a guest emailer last week. She emailed in to say that her husband, um, she was in sort of quite a low mood a couple of months ago because her husband had, had beggared off with an a, a Irish novelist. Oh, yes. Remember this, and she was yeah. good. Um, we'd love to know, uh, Lisa, if you found the camper van of your dreams. So do let us know. You probably won't be listening today because it is a lady novelist as our big guest, but you are free to listen the rest of this week. Don't worry. So she's not listening now, but if she were, uh, she might hear this. Okay, and can I just say a thank you to the very kind emailer who sent me a picture of a picture of the Walthamstow Ferry. Uh, There isn't a Walthamstow Ferry, but somebody, when she left Walthamstow uh, and moved down to a seaside resort, uh, had been given uh, by a friend of hers a made-up picture of the Walthamstow Ferry. Here it is, uh, Laura Sequeira, uh, who has moved to Hove, uh, but the picture here is of Walthamstow on sea, uh, and that was because of my really silly dream. Uh, So thank you very much indeed for that. Great. Um, Okay, our big guest today... Did I say great enthusiastically enough? You said great in such a patronising way. Do you know what? You said great in the way that sometimes... You know when very occasionally they have a clever person guest presenting on the one show? Mm. You said great in that kind of a way when they've just introduced a piece about dancing puffins. (laughs) You mean, and they have to think of something to say off the back of it. Yes. Great! Well, it's to be fair, that is quite hard. I'd love to see you do that. That would be so funny. Well, I think, I think we've got to, I've got to accept that my chances of presenting the one show fee are extraordinarily low. No, I think you should raise your game. <laughs> um, Agent M, uh, thank you very... Oh, Agent V, by the way, did get in touch last week to say she was still listening. Uh, that was the lady who paid for the Ken Follett charity lunch, so delighted to get that email, and thank you very much for yeah. sending it in. But this is Agent M, who says, um, I'm sorry it's taken me so long for me to introduce myself. Yes, you have been a bit tardy, but we'll we'll let you off. I've just sold up after many years owning and running my hotel business. The experience was never a first choice, as my husband had bought the business while I was away sailing in Greece. The things that go on. You pop off to Greece on a sail, get home to discover that Hobby has only gone and bought a hotel business. Could happen to anyone. Well, I'm glad it never (laughs) happened to me. The building was listed and falling apart. The kitchen floor imploded the week we took over. There were birds nesting in rooms and within weeks of taking over, we had to deal with the fallout of foot and mouth and 9-11. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But in time, I found my feet and some great staff to help me. And eventually the place came together. But the later years, the dreaded Covid years, were really hard. And like so many others, I struggled emotionally and financially. We did have to sell in June and I'm now adjusting to the changes ahead. Um, Well, I hope the adjustment hasn't been too painful. That must have been, I mean, to put everything you've got into running a business like that, it must be really difficult to pack it in, mustn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, she does go on to say, um, what should a man call his todger? Well, that's the question of the day, isn't it? Mm. Uh, that's a difficult one. I just don't know what the answer is. And I'm going to throw it over to our male members. <laughs> literally. Absolutely literally. <laughs> uh, Jane and Fee at Times.Radio. Is there, is there an acceptable name because i'm not having willie i'm just not (laughs) no we're not no no and and Um, i I think we can just all agree we know that we should uh be really really comfortable with saying penis and vagina but we're not but we're not and there's something about them just in a lexicography way 
uh, which is just uh, difficult. Mm. They're not pleasant words. Oh, it's so odd, isn't it? Yeah, and I wonder, maybe other languages have more pleasant words for them. Well, some of our listeners will know, as you yeah. know, I'm not a linguist, but no. you are better at languages than I am. No, not that good, darling. <laughs> no, not that good. Don't, don't land it all on me. I did. The, you're about to hear an interview with Victoria Hislop, um, who writes so many best-selling, mega-successful novels about Greece and other Mediterranean uh, destinations, I should say. It's not just Greece, but she does say during the course of the interview, and I've been thinking about it ever since, that whilst the ancient Greeks were doing all these incredible artworks, sculptures, building these amazing temples, in England... They were doing Stonehenge, which, which is beautiful. And it is a feat of engineering. Oh, yes. Yeah. Art. Art. So I think there are some fantastic comparisons on exactly that kind of, you know, what, what were we doing when? Mm. And I'm pretty sure that when the Chinese were inventing the wheel and when a papyrus was being made in yeah. Egypt, I think we were pretty much still in the cave. Really? Yeah. I don't think we show up well on that graph, Jane, at I, all. I want but to look, end, at, look I, at us now. I was going to say, I want to end, I want to end this conversation. We invented Strictly and we've got, um, what else have we got? What else have we got? <laughs> don't put me on the spot. Don't put me on the spot. Well, according to Jeremy Hunt today, we've got an absolutely thriving Silicon Valley. There we are. Right, <laughs> OK. Although, obviously, we're not Silicon Valley, so that argument falls down immediately, doesn't it? <laughs> Right, quickly, let's get back to Greece. Our guest today was the author, Victoria Hislop. I'm handing it over to you because you, 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 you were leading the interview, Jane. Leading the interview. Victoria's latest novel... <laughs> <laughs> we get paid for this. Victoria's latest novel is called The Figurine. Uh, it's her ninth book. Now, as you, many of you will know, um, many, so many of her great books are set in Greece, including the first one, uh, which was The Island, which is a genuinely lovely and insightful novel about what was actually a, a colony for people with leprosy, and it was hugely successful. That was her breakthrough book. The book, not the colony. Not the colony, no. Uh, definitely the book. The Figurine um, is very interesting, and it calls into question the acquisition of cultural treasures and the price that comes countries will pay and the price that countries will pay to cling on to them victoria is also an honorary greek i can never read victoria is also an honorary greek citizen and what's more she has even been a competitor on what fee strictly come dancing does greece yes the greek version of strictly indeed two years ago i would have been rehearsing my probably my cha-cha Right. At this very moment. Okay. Um, and it's it, tough. Oh, no, I'm sure it is. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Who was your partner? He was called Telemachos. Yes. Um, son of Odysseus. I'm sure all your <laughs> listeners know that. Well, I certainly knew that. And he was a tyrant. Was he? He was half my age. Um, his mother was twice my age. Did he have some daddy issues? So, well, he, was, he treated me as I was a professional. And I learned all sorts of new Greek words, some mm. of them swear words, mm. but one of them was spagad. And I remember the moment very distinctly when he just said, spagad, spagad. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I could sort of tell him that in Greek. And he said, it means the splits. And I said, well, I can't do the splits. No. Can your mother do the split? He was... He really pushed me mm. and I gave it my all and I lasted, I think, for 10 weeks. That's amazing. So, you know, I wasn't quite the kind of joke candidate. Absolutely not, no. Um, and it was the most extraordinary thing I've ever done and everybody who does it says the same, well, they this, don't regret this is, it. This is the weird thing. So people do seem to just drink mm. the old Strictly Kool-Aid and yeah. say exactly what you've just said. You love it, you hate it, you cry, you laugh. And the live performance brings out the best in everybody. That's what's so remarkable. Yeah. I think about the brain. Mm. Under pressure, we can do it. But mm. don't you start to... Uh, I mean, if, if somebody's really, really pushing you physically and there are just some things you can't do, that can feel like a really uncomfortable position oh, to be in. So but the painkillers help. Oh, okay. I, lived, I lived on painkillers. Painkillers and stardust. And, um, you know, that gel... Um, that you yeah. plastered. We're all, all familiar with it. Voltarol. I, I didn't know whether I was allowed to say Voltarol, but really, I couldn't have survived without Voltarol. So it was strength. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it was 
amazing agony and ecstasy. Right. At extremes. OK, well, that's given us a proper insight. Um, <laughs> and shout out again to your partner who was called... Tilemachos. Yes, I better be listening. Um, OK, so let's talk about your writing career, and particularly the figurine, which introduced me to a part of Greek history I didn't know anything about at all, actually, the period of a military dictatorship in the country, which lasted quite, quite a chunk of time, didn't it? And it was yes. very vicious. It began in April 1967... Um, with a coup by three rather mediocre army colonels. Mm. They weren't even the top chaps in the army. They, mm. were, they were a bit sort of, um, you know, second rank, really. Right. But they conspired, uh, staged a coup, um, got rid of the king. You know, they had a royal family at that point, And for seven years ruled with a rod of iron. Mm. And in fact, it was only the, the 1974 crisis with Cyprus that finally toppled um, the regime. So Cyprus was some, probably the moment when a lot of us became aware that Greece was under a military junta. Yes. And um, just remind everybody what happened in, in Cyprus, that the Turks decided to... To invade Cyprus because the, the Greek junta had deposed the democratically elected Makarios. That's right. Okay. Um, and that sort of triggered a sort of series of events that brought about the downfall of the junta. But during that junta period, there was um, no freedom of speech, mm. obviously no democracy, no voting, um, and people on the left were persecuted and exiled. People like Melina Makuri, who every one of our generation, you know, remembers the fiery actress who eventually became Minister for Culture. Um, but the junta period was terrifying for those who tried to resist it. And yet, the irony is they began great promotion of tourism. So I think a lot of us might have gone to Greece for holidays, early 70s, they built hotels mm -hmm. and they promoted Greece as a lovely destination. Which, of course, it is. I mean, I, I'm probably biased because I do regard it as, by some margin the best place to go on holiday. Oh, well, that's lovely I mean, I, to hear. And there's just something about the, your books which take me back there. There's the quality of... There's something about the quality of sunlight first thing in the morning in Greece that I don't think can be bettered anywhere else I've ever been, certainly. Well, I totally agree. I mean, we've all discovered vitamin D. You know, that's our new yeah. daily vitamin, isn't it? To keep us mentally well and physically well. And I think Greece is a is a vitamin D yeah. version of a country. The central character here is Helena, who we first meet at the very beginning, and she is on... Uh, well, she goes on a kind of annual trip to stay with her grandparents. Now, her grandmother is a very nice, relatively benign figure, but her grandfather, tell us about him. Well, he is a general um, and serves very loyally under the junta, so he's a, a senior army commander. Um, but he gives everything to that cause, um, at the expense of his family and at the expense of many people who he takes bribes to persecute. Um, and he's not based on anyone particular. There isn't a real uh, General Papayanis lurking out there somewhere, but he's based on a number of um, sort of army generals that I read about who, you know, loyally served these three colonels when some of the generals actually resigned from the army because they weren't in favour of what had happened. But he, he's a he's a baden. Yeah. And um, the protagonist gradually, through her little eight-year-old uh, eyes, comes to understand that. Yes, and there's one rather chilling episode where she's out in the street and hears the sound of screaming from a building where it is widely rumoured to be a place where people are taken to be tortured. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Those, those sort of details are very, very much factual. Um, I never sort of make anything bad up about Greece. You know, these sort of rather dark, sinister um, events and places existed. So during that junta period, people were tortured, many of them slightly more in more obscure places like the islands of Macronissos um, where they were imprisoned but there were places of interrogation in Athens as well. I was going to ask you about that because I wonder whether now you are an honorary Greek citizen where you feel perhaps you feel a sort of loyalty to the state, the nation, the people which might make it harder for you to write about rather difficult parts of, of Greek history. Yeah, You might think so but I, I don't 
believe that that's how I should be. You know, I don't feel I should be sort of the the puppet. Um, and I'm not. And interestingly, younger Greek readers, because in a week or so the translation will come out, and that's when I'm a little bit fearful because I go on the road in Greece and I meet audiences who may not like me writing about the civil war or the hunter or the torture that happened. But conversely, I meet many people who say, well, thank you for telling me about mm. that part of history because it doesn't really come into their curriculum and nobody seems to mind learning a bit more about their own country's past. We say Greece as if it is just one country, but, I mean, there are so many different islands, there are so many different communities. So how... How wide is that kind of spectrum of the Greek experience? It can't just be one thing, surely? It's not, absolutely not at all. There are hundreds of islands with a population, you know, inhabited islands that you've probably never heard of, um, and every island is unique and different. Um, and indeed, you know, the mainland is mountains, lakes, you know, extremes of, of kind of um, topography... But Athens does dominate because unlike many countries, UK, good example, many more than half of the population of Greece live in Athens. So out of a 12 million population, you have 6 million there. So it really does you know, dominate massively. And I really always wanted to set a novel a little bit more in Athens. I've mostly chosen other cities and places because um, I think it it does determine um, everything that goes on oh. in oh, Greece. And what about its connection to its ancient self? I mean, 5th century Athenian democracy was the mother of all democracies, wasn't it? The crucible yes. of democracy. Uh, so do, is there a sense that, they, that there is always that kind of uh, backup behind the modern politics of Greece, which can seem... Slightly confusing, and as you've mentioned, you know, often with an element of corruption and force and threat around it. Democracy in Greece, although we always say, oh, the Greeks invented it, let's not forget that women didn't vote. So it's not or democracy slaves, or, or slaves. Or immigrants. Exactly. So you're absolutely <laughs> so right. So it was the vote Athenian for... men. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so it's not the, the democracy that's evolved to mean what it does to you and I today. You know, um, it's it's changed, but nevertheless, the concept of it, very importantly, is Greek. Many Greeks are even frustrated by their own country for trying to promote the idea that they are connected with that great, you know, classical past, because, of course, there were big gaps. You know, they had the Ottoman Empire there, um, for 400 years. So they don't, even they don't believe that there's this straight line of continuity um, from, you know, the 5th century Athens to BC, Athens to now. And they're very, um, in their education system, the really liberal, enlightened um, people I meet say, you know, people shouldn't buy the idea that we're like the ancient Greeks because if we believe that we are as powerful and strong it's not true you know they're they're a little bit more compli complicated than that mm. um but it, it's good in terms of tourism you know i don't like to sort of disassociate the ancient greece from what you go to see because that's now. what we go to marvel at as, mm. as well as the you know the lovely light and all of yeah that. absolutely yeah. it is that ancient culture you know they were let's say when we were building stonehenge they were creating these kind of beautiful sculptures that I've described in the book. Was it at exactly the same time? Oh, about suddenly that. Rather defensive yes. about the British. Yes, no, I know, and I should we were doing be our as best. well. In fact, I read only the other day that um, in the 19th century, people used to go to Stonehenge and chip off what? bits of bits of those stones. I, mean, I was quite shocked that, that that happened, as, of course, it did in Greece. People used to... Um, carve bits off, you yes. know, carve their names in the stones. Oh, gosh, it's actually horrendous when you, when you think about it. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Victoria is the author of a number of hugely successful books, many of which set in and around Greece, and her new one is called The Figurine. We'll talk about The Figurine in a moment, but you are a member of this British Committee for the Reunification of the Parthenon Marbles. Now, I think you've changed your opinion on all this, haven't you? Because as a little girl, didn't you go to the British Museum? Yes, absolutely. As everyone my age did, we revered the British Museum and I think the first really memorable exhibition that I went to was the Tutankhamun exhibition which was obviously the visiting treasures um, from from the Valley of the Kings and it was it was life-changing it was the most exciting day of my childhood almost you know because we didn't go to Egypt to have a look at things Mm. we hoped they'd come to us Um, and I massively respected Neil McGregor he was a very, very charismatic speaker. Uh, remind me, he was the... He was the director before Hartwig Fischer. Right. So he was the, the one before last. Yeah. Um, and did the, you know, the world in a hundred objects. Oh, yeah. And very, very creative man. And could speak very convincingly about the British Museum as the world museum. And something has happened since then, not just to me, but I think in the attitude of many of us that... Why should the British Museum be the world museum? We're not even part of Europe anymore. So to say that this is somewhere that everyone should come and see the world, it just, I believed it from Neil McGregor, but right now it just feels like arrogance. Well, the British Museum's had any number of of problems lately, hasn't it? Indeed. The suggestion of things. That's been well, very well covered by the Times, Mm. um, that they've discovered that they have perhaps 2,000 pieces missing from their collection. And then at the same time, it's sort of been exposed that actually they hardly know what's in their collection Mm. because it's not properly catalogued. So they really don't have any right to regard themselves as the the world's number one museum. Well, their curation is obviously questionable, I Mm. think. You know, that's putting it politely. So let's talk then about the things we used to regard or describe as the Elgin marbles. Um, How did... It was Lord Elgin, wasn't it? Yes, he was was Lord Elgin, a hereditary lord um, who lived in Scotland. And he uh, was ambassador to the, for the, in the Ottoman Empire. And he came back um, with, not exactly with the, the Parthenon sculptures, but he decided he wanted to have these treasures to decorate his own house in Scotland. Uh, not even, he wasn't taking them for no. the British Museum for no. you and me and Fee yeah. to have a look at. Mm. Um, he wanted them for his own pile, his big country pile. Um, And he got permission to take uh, moulds so that they could be copied um, for his house. But actually, that was the permission given. And then he decided, I'll take the originals, no one will mind. So in a um, process that took nearly two years, he hacked them off uh, with crowbars and hacksaws, you know, with this team of of um, locals and had them shipped back to England. Some of them sank. One of the ships sank on the way. They went to the bottom of the sea. He had to pay to have them brought up. Um, it, it's, a, it's a long story, but it's a short one. Basically, he stole them. Yeah. And the British Museum saw that this man was bankrupt, which he was. His wife had left him for his best friend. Um, there's a book there, isn't there, really? Let's oh, there's, there's more. Some For somebody else, I couldn't write a book with such a bad person right. in it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the British Museum basically paid him 
for the expenses, you know, he needed the 35000 that he was paid just to bail him out from all the money he'd spent on this operation. So, having heard that, and thank you mm. for the explanation, why have we not given them back? Why have we still got them? What a good question, because legally, although they're stolen goods, which you might think is shaky ground, but legally the British Museum does own them because they did pay the person who, who took them offered them this mm. money so they are there is a legality um but nevertheless you know and there's a law that says that the british museum can't part with its treasures without an act of parliament but you know an act of parliament we all know is a piece of paper it can be done and the you know as is often um i think written in the times the the majority of the British public now believe that they should go back to Athens. You know, it, it's even a, a popular view that they don't belong in this dark, grey, miserable Duveen Gallery, which, may I say, it was closed last month for 12 days for no advertised reason. Um, so you couldn't go in there and even see them if you wanted to. Oh, it's a really sad story, actually. It's making me feel quite, um, I'm quite angry about oh, it. I feel I'm, angry. Don't feel sort of, sad. If, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I've been slightly indifferent about this whole saga for most of my life. But, but oh, go on, Fee. Given all of that, uh, mm -hmm. how much longer do you think that they will be in this country? Because there won't come a time when people change their position if they've gone over to that side of believing that they should be returned. Uh, no, I mean, I believe that the latest events at the British Museum slightly put them on shakier ground. Um, and they can't now say, oh, we are curating everything better than they'll ever be curated in Athens. That's patently untrue because of the museum in Athens that's been built beneath the Acropolis to accommodate them, which is a place full of glass and light and the view of the Parthenon itself mm. above it. And there's no reason why you should know the answer to this question, but you just might. Is there another country that has plundered our treasures in the same way that we've plundered? That is a good... Um, I could almost put my hand on my heart and say I don't know, but I don't think so. What would they... What would be plundered? Well, they unless are, they would have come person, for Stonehenge. <laughs> unless it's one person that's plundered these 2,000 objects. Yeah, but, but it just says so much about um, our mentality, doesn't it? Yes, I think it's time for us to be... And we, it's making us very unpopular as a nation. When you go to the museum in Athens, you know, there's a very polite notice that just describes the reason that these sculptures are not there. And that's Gosh. quite unusual, and I... As a Brit, you can feel quite ashamed of that. The The title of the book is The Figurine, and there is a, a small... They are tiny little figures, aren't they, um, that are found quite routinely on digs in Greece? Is yes, that right? there are many of them um, found in the Cycladic Islands. Right. And they're mysterious because nobody quite knows what they were for. It was They were created during a time before writing or records, so it's all a little bit guesswork. They're not dolls, they weren't little dolls. Well, some people think they might have been to sort of play with or to keep you company in the afterlife, but nearly over 90% of the ones found um, are the female rather than the male. Mm. So they have this kind of mystique, you know, were women worshipped? It's certainly um, a sort of symbol of fertility and of femininity and of womanhood, um, which even the modern artists revered hugely because of their beauty. So, I mean, the book also, that there's a suggestion that quite routinely, I'm sure this doesn't happen, I'm just covering myself, occasionally on archaeological digs, people pinch stuff. Well, that's what happens in the story. Yes, it happens in the story, and, and it's just a story. <laughs> but actually, my whole kind of... The reason I came across the figurine in the first place was when I went to an archaeological dig... And one of the things I was told immediately was that before this current group of British archaeologists got there, this whole huge grave site, a grave site had been um, looted and uh, many of the figures had turned up in private collections um, abroad. Right. So there is a market for stolen, looted mm. objects and the the one that fetched the most... Um, in the 20th century was 16 and a half million dollars right, that's a lot so of money so people are doing yeah. it 
for money. Mm. Um, you know, it's not it's not petty crime. It's quite a quite large scale. It certainly theft. isn't. That's astonishing. And actually, again, rather depressing. But this book is not depressing. <laughs> I, I need to make it very clear. Um, there's a little bit of there's a light romance. There is. There's no smut. Thank goodness, because in that heat, who'd be in no, the No, I, I never do smart, no, ever, ever. I, I, Victoria, <laughs> I don't want you to. I really don't. Um, no, I really loved it, because it, you, your stories do genuinely transport the reader, and that's what, that's what they're all about. Um, you've been doing that since, since the island, haven't you? And it's, it's much appreciated. I know you're at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Um, when are you appearing? I'm there on Saturday evening. Right. I think about eight o'clock. OK, and are tickets still available? Well, well, I hope not, I don't, but if you'll they have are, to go, it's worth it. You'll have to get there quickly. Make sure you have a look. She's always really... Isn't she always lovely, Victoria Hislop? She is lovely. Yeah, she's uh, very nice. So, um... You did make a very funny joke about Moussaka at the end of it, which we couldn't keep in, in the podcast mm. version because the music was running underneath it. Uh, and I can't remember exactly what it was, though, but well, it made her laugh. It did make... Well, only because there's a very brief reference to Moussaka in The Figurine um, because it involves uh, quite a number of archaeological digs and Helena, the central character, just finds that Moussaka isn't really what she wants after a, a difficult and heady day in the sun excavating, you know, you can imagine. Well, who would? Well, I know. What you really want is a little bit of... Min- it's what I want every night, really, just a small plate of white fish and a lovely green salad. So why so often I find myself eating a cheese and pickle baguette? I just don't know. <laughs> it just but comes over you. It just, it just comes over <laughs> me. And I find myself unable to exist on one of those diets of egg white omelettes, white fish and green leaves. Um, anyway, um, misaka is it's a strange food for the Greeks to have as pretty much their national dish because let's face it it's bloody hot there i know and uh, masaka is a play you know it's a it's a meal that would satisfy someone who'd done a 12-hour shift in a mine in a northern do you know what i mean it's not a it's not a sunshine food is it really no but presumably uh, a, a greek winter is quite chilly i hadn't thought of that yeah so maybe we've just we've taken the winter dish haven't mm. we because now our summers are warming up. I'm not sure that we should really be well, associated with the pies it's not just our, It's not just our summers, is oh, it? Oh, we're in a balmy autumn and I, it's troubling. It, well, I know, I, don't, I know that the temperature isn't really, really high all over the UK this approaching weekend. But certainly in London, it is a ludicrous 26 Celsius on Sunday. And call me an old fart, Fee. But I don't think it's right. You're an old fart. Good night. Bye. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener? I'm sorry. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.